Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, October 19th, 2021. I'm John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us today, uh, the first uh, in a series of guest appearances we're going to have on the podcast over the next week to 10 days, uh, of the authors who are included in our very important special issue, November special issue, now available at commentary.org, Woke the Threat, uh, a compendium of articles that attempt to detail why it is that wokeness, try to define wokeness and then explain why it is a threat to speech, uh, to language, to the Jewish people, to education, to comedy, and uh, to the good working social order of the United States. And one of the authors in that compendium of pieces is with us today, uh, Wilfred Riley, associate professor of political science at Kentucky State and a frequent contributor to commentary. Will, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back, John. Okay, so let's talk about your piece, which is, um, I would say, more of a sociology of wokeness than it is a uh, analysis or a sort of a deep plumbing of the problems of wokeness. Uh, the piece is called The Whiteness of Wokeness, and uh, why don't you explain what it is that you focus on or sort of try to zoom in on as a quality of this new revolutionary idea? Sure. Well, like a lot of the things I write, this actually had a pretty direct inspiration. I'm, uh, I'm casual friends with Andy No, the sort of gonzo or better say independent journalist. And I was looking through his Antifa mugshot series online. It's a whole series of images where he documents the people that were actually arrested for any serious crimes at uh, Antifa, BLM, so on events. And it struck me that at least in the Pacific Northwest, they were all white. And that, that was a bit bizarre because a lot of the events specifically had Black Lives Matter in the title. And I started looking at the extent to which people in different demographic groups as a political scientist support some of the things that we associate with kind of the modern rise of woke movement. And I consistently kept finding that the group that supported this stuff the most, often the only group that supported it, was upper middle class white urban liberals, um, particularly liberal women. So there's a lot of this broken down, as I, as I often do for commentary, just empirically in the piece. I mean, we look at defunding the police. There was a great large end poll that was done recently that was reported on by Newsweek pretty well that found that 81% of actual black people is the phrase that comes to mind, African-Americans, particularly in cities, want more policing. They want either the police force currently patrolling their neighborhoods, this was the phrasing, to remain exactly the same in size, or they want it to increase. And I believe the second was more common. So support for defunding the police was concentrated almost entirely among white people on the left living in cities. And there were, there were a couple other examples of this kind of thing. I mean, so cancel culture is obviously discussed. And I give some of the more egregious examples. I mean, this soccer player, one of the U.S.'s top soccer stars, whatever that's worth, but this soccer player who was fired for, because his wife posted some insensitive memes about rioting online. And then I look at the data on who approves of this kind of thing. And it turns out that political correctness 
is rejected by members of almost every group. Blacks rejected it by almost exactly the same percentage as whites to within 3%, except again, white urban liberals, especially liberal women. So I, I started discussing this phenomenon that you see with a lot of wokeness in a sentence. What you see is not kind of the rising demands of the proletariat or something like that. What you see is people that have a very coherent leftist agenda within kind of the pre-existing white left trying to paint the same campaigns. We need to become a bit more socialized at the state governmental level or something like that as saving or serving minorities. And what you often find is that although many minorities, particularly Blacks, do vote for the Democratic Party, actual Black and Hispanic people, certainly Asian Americans or Arab Americans, aren't really interested in this kind of thing, transgender rights and so on. So that dichotomy was an interesting one. And it, it's going to become a major problem should they win for the left's kind of coalition of, of the fringes down the road. There's very little that inherently many of these groups have in common. It struck me as, um, as I was listening to you that um, revolutionary movements of all stripes have this quality, which is to say that they speak in the name of others who it is said are too politically weak, sociologically weak, or maybe literally too weak from excessive labor and suffering to speak for themselves. And that they, the, the revolutionary purpose is to deliver the oppressed from their oppression but the deliverers never come from the class of people who are going to provide the deliverance. You know, it's the classic, the Khmer Rouge were all highly educated members of the upper crust of Cambodian society who went to the Sorbonne. They weren't laborers in the fields of Cambodia who then, you know, saw that life was just, you know, uh, unthinkable. And of course, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels being maybe the two greatest examples of this, but, you know, Lenin, Trotsky, these are all intellectuals uh, embracing violent change in many ways in the name of people who are either too suffering or too stupid to know that they need it. Yeah, Does that I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's a classic and recognized tendency, as I, I think some members of the panel know, in political science in particular. I mean, revolution, it, the point, it's almost a joke. I mean, revolutions begin with the guilty bourgeoisie and so on down the line. Every revolutionary leader has come from the upper middle class and is angry at their father. These are things people say at cocktail parties. But it, we do see it in practice. And it's, I think, really, the, the point between our, our statements has kind of been made. I mean, what we see with a lot of this stuff, like the campaigns for defunding the police, this is, this is the probably ultimate example of this, is support among almost the cliche revolutionary left. I mean, lower upper class, urban, mostly Caucasian, Ivy or Big Ten, so on individuals. And the group being spoken for is... Blacks very often or the poor or something like that. We we see uh, Hispanic immigrants now sort of moving into this category of, you know, favored mascot. The issue is that the things being advocated for very often aren't supported by members of these groups. I mean, I, I could have put this in the in the piece quite easily, but I mean, the majority of Hispanic legal immigrants who are one of the hardest working, most traditional groups in the country strongly oppose illegal immigration. So, I mean, the ending line of 
the piece is simply if you're interested in knowing what people think among the working class or among black Americans or something like that. I mean, you can go to the gym or church and work and ask them. You don't necessarily need to hear the spokespeople of this group or the self-appointed spokespeople of this group. And I mean, going back to Saul Alinsky, a lot of the spokespeople for these groups have nothing in common with kind of the main line mean average in the group. I mean, if you look at the Black Lives Matter website, a platform for the movement for Black Lives, which people at least on Know Your Enemy Ground should take a look at. I mean, it's a, a fantastic range of upper class left wing advocacy positions. I mean, Free Palestine is on there. That's one I specifically checked for. But I mean, transgender rights to break the nuclear family. They took that one off last month. But the percentage of black men that are interested in further destroying the black or urban white nuclear family would be close to zero. Uh, so you, the advocacy position is very, very different from any position held by the people being advocated for. And we consistently see this problem over and over. I mean, your line is a good one. The revolutionary speaks in the name of others. It might be a good idea to ask the others rather than the revolutionary. Well, that's isn't that. So I'm of two minds of this constantly, because on some days it's it's a terrifying threat to the social fabric. It wants to remake the social order from the ground up. And at other times it's terribly self-destructive and ineffective as a result. So kind of what you're describing is this generational impulse that you've seen consistently from progressive reformist movements in the 19th century. It was Toynbee Hall, where they would send university men to settle in in the East End and educate, you know, the proletariat and in uh, proletarian causes. It was the Neighborhood Guild in the United States, sort of a the Turgenev idea of revolutionary young uh, college uh, students descending on the peasantry to inculcate class consciousness in them. And that's sort of a, a feature of this movement as well, but not a pronounced one, because if you were to do what they did in the Neighborhood Guild and settle in these in these areas, and talk to people and inculcate revolutionary consciousness, you're gentrifying, you're part of the problem, right? So you have to, to adhere to these, these principles, you have to be insular, you have to self-segregate, um, which makes you a less, less of a threat. There's also another weird contradiction in the way that this movement is played out now uh, versus then. I'm glad, uh, Will, that you, you mentioned that they're largely white women, white progressive women here in D.C. during all of the Black Lives Matter protests of the past summer, you would have these bizarre moments where these angry white female college students were screaming at African-American cops and telling them they were oppressors. It was bizarre. But but there's a lot of self-hatred, too, right? Because there are all these books being published by, you know, activists of color calling white women the enemy, saying white women are the problem. They elected Trump. You know, we they've ruined feminism for everyone else. So there's there's a requirement for they a lot of maids. these. Yes, they have, they have maids, maids and, they have and nannies. babysitters. Exactly. So yeah. they're the problem. But they're kind of embracing this idea of themselves as oppressors and then going out and telling the people who they believe to be oppressed what to do. It's it's strange. But I mean, isn't that I, I mean, I think that that is it's the motivating factor. I mean, this this is why it is ultimately about them, the the the, the revolution that that they uh, that they you know, that they're interested in is is not at the end of the day about those um, for whom they claim to speak. It is about them. It is about expiating their guilt. It is that that is it is they're entirely focused on themselves. But well, it's not as though there isn't a kind of popular front here in this sense, which is that we what, what we're detailing is that uh, public opinion polls 
suggest that these issues are of particular resonance to a certain type of educated white person. But obviously, we have politicians like Jamal Bowman and Ayala, Ayanna Presley and Ilhan Omar uh, and, um, and India uh, Walton, who's running for mayor in Buffalo and has caused a kerfuffle in New York State because the Democratic chairman, uh, the state, the chairman of the state Democratic Party, finding her um, extremely outré, uh, you know, decided he wanted to do a thought experiment and say, look, you're saying I should just support any uh, Democrat because they're a Democrat. Well, what if David Duke came to town and said he was a Democrat and was running for mayor of Schenectady? Should we support him? And then the, like all this, how dare he compare India Walton <laughs> to David Duke and this guy, Jay Jacobs, is now in trouble. But I mean, it's not as though this doesn't serve the interests of a certain, again, vanguard class of African-American politician, right? I, I don't quite know how to, because uh, uh, Bernie Sanders may be sort of like the paradigmatic American leftist of, of the moment, but he is not the fashionable American leftist of the moment. That would be AOC or, you know, the squad or Ayanna Presley or people like that. Well, Will, what, what do you, do you think what do you on make that? Of yeah, that? I mean, the, the profound disparity between what you're describing as the median point of view among African-Americans, Hispanics, and the total lack of that point of view being expressed anywhere on center-left media. What you're seeing, I think, well, a lot of this gets into class division in the United States of America. And class is the giant and ignored rhinoceros in the room in U.S. society. Um, to the extent that virtually the entire discursive media, including me to some extent, I mean, I live in central Louisville, I'm from Chicago, I have a bunch of college degrees, but virtually everyone is, you know, upper middle to lower upper class, everything I just described, actually, I mean, coastal, urban, college educated, mostly white, but that doesn't really matter, so on down the line, Um so that in general is a problem of representation throughout American conversational life. I actually grew up in the hood. I was born on the south side of Chicago. I moved to the east side of nearby Aurora. And the perspectives of ordinary working class people like those that I knew are generally not expressed anywhere. Conservative media does actually a better job of this. But I think when you're talking about the, the rising Ilhan Omar sort of cadre of minority leaders on the left among the Dems specifically, Many of those people, although Omar to some extent actually does, don't represent don't represent majority minority communities very often, and most of the time don't represent the majority perspective in those communities. A takes on the black church, for example. I think that trend, minority far left leaders are often popular because they appeal to an audience of the white people we're describing here to some extent. I mean, when you look at the, I mean, moving into my own academic world, because I haven't followed each one of these politicians. I mean, I would say that the audiences that hire, for example, Dr. Ibram Kendi are probably on average 85 to 90% white. So the appeal is not necessarily that this person is saying exactly what working class minorities think. There may be some of that when it comes to largely incorrect perceptions of racism being everywhere. I mean, last I looked, 25% of African-Americans believe AIDS was invented in a lab to kill us. But there's almost none of that when it gets into typical Black views of, say, policing. One of the things I mentioned in the article, frankly, is homosexuality and trans rights. 
the uh, the pitch of Kendi, or specifically Robin D'Angelo, any, anyone in this genre is to white people in the potentially revolutionary class. And I would I would actually agree that there's a lot of confusion. And I don't want to single out a, a sex or group, but especially among white women and kind of the younger end of this range about where they fall, whether they are oppressor or oppressed. So if you actually read one of Robin D'Angelo's books, which is an interesting exercise, but I mean, I reviewed uh, one of them at least. The, the whole thing is a constant discussion of how to minimize your latent racism, how to control the advantages you have to the point where you kind of get the impression that she's a bit racist herself and that she thinks a lot of her audience is. Like, how do you, one of the questions is how do you respond when you're on a date and you want to start telling black jokes or you want to be, you want your black date to be aware that, that's not quite it, but it's, do you want your black date to be aware that you're not going to make black jokes you're aware of, I think is the question. And reading, the, that's, that's not really much of an exaggeration, if any at all. I mean, she goes through a whole scene where she's on a date with this pleasant young African-American guy, if I recall this correctly. And she says she kept wanting to tell him about the racism, her, her family and, you know, kind of one liner she was aware of, but she wouldn't use. And so and it struck me as the most painfully awkward scene that no one I know, black or white, would e ever conceive of even mentally. You just you know, eat your steak and see if you like the person enough to go on another date. Well, so, she treat, she's treating him like her confessor. Right. That's, she that's, wants that, that's excellently she... put. Yeah. No, I, I think that's correct. I think that, uh, sorry, it's going on a bit there. I think that for a lot of white people in this group, and again, I'm a political scientist, I'm not a psychologist, but the idea seems to be that minorities, Black people specifically, are kind of the unique, real, sort of id-expressing human beings, and that you, of course, you are better and smarter than them. This is consistently conveyed by D'Angelo and everyone in this genre, but you nonetheless as you teach them about the programs that they really want, you want their approval of you as an authentic, sexual, expressive, social being, because they are the real avatars of a different type of humanity. I think that's pretty close to it. You know what they actually want, which is labor unions or some such. It's always the same commie crap environment. It's been the same for 100 years. <laughs> but as you teach them this, you want their approval of you as, you know, anti-racist, sensual, socially active you. And that that's the dichotomy you see with a lot of young activists, even into intimate relationships, but certainly in politics. Um, I, I want to. Uh, this is uh, this is going to be a longish digression, but it sort of fits this uh, point to a T. Uh, the other week, I mentioned uh, George Orwell's *The Road to Wigan Pier*, which is a book he published in 1936 about uh, the British working class. Um, and there is an absolutely astonishing uh, passage that I thought I would share with you guys because uh, Orwell at the time dubbed himself a socialist. And um, he he wants and he puts it this way in in uh, chapter 11 of this remarkable book. Um, he says, I believe that the present intensely stupid handling of the class issue may stampede quantities of potential socialists into fascism. OK, what does he mean by this? He says the following, I'm arguing for socialism, not against it, but for the moment, I am advocatus diaboli. I'm making out a case for the sort of person who is in sympathy with the fundamental aims of socialism, but who in practice always takes to flight when socialism is mentioned. 
question a person of this type, and you will often get the semi-frivolous answer, I don't object to socialism, but I do object to socialists. Logically, it is a poor argument, but it carries weight with many people. As with the Christian religion, the worst advertisement for socialism is its adherence. And this is, if we substitute wokeism for socialism here, you can, you can see how this is going to go. The first thing that must strike any outside observer is that socialism in its developed form is a theory confined entirely to the middle classes. The typical socialist is not, as tremulous old ladies imagine, a ferocious-looking working man with greasy overalls and a raucous voice. He is either a youthful snob Bolshevik, who in five years' time will quite probably have made a wealthy marriage and been converted to Roman Catholicism, or still more typically, a prim little man with a white-collar job, usually a secret teetotaler, and often with vegetarian leanings. This type is surprisingly common in socialist parties of every shade. It has perhaps been taken over en bloc from the old liberal party. In addition to this, there is the horrible, the really disquieting prevalence of cranks whenever socialists are gathered together. Now think of Andy Ngo's photographs and what went on in Portland. One sometimes gets the impression that the mere words socialism and communism, we could add wokeism here as we're talking about, draw towards them with magnetic force every fruit juice drinker, nudist, sandal wearer, sex maniac, Quaker, nature cure, quack, pacifist, and feminist in England. One day this summer, I was riding through Letchworth when the bus stopped and two dreadful looking old men got onto it. They were both about 60, both very short, pink and chubby and both hatless. They were dressed in pistachio colored shirts and khaki shorts into which their huge bottoms were crammed so tightly you could study every dimple. Their appearance created a mild stir of horror on top of the bus. The man next to me, a commercial traveler, I should say, glanced at me, at them, and back at me and murmured, socialists. He was probably right, but the point is that to him, as an ordinary man, a crank meant a socialist, and a socialist meant a crank. Any socialist he probably felt could be counted on to have something eccentric about him. To this, you have got to add the ugly fact that most middle-class socialists, while basically pining for a classless society, cling like glue to their miserable fragments of social prestige. For every person uh, of this sort bears the worst stigmata of sniffish middle-class superiority. If a real working man, a minor dirty from the pit, for instance, had suddenly walked into their midst, they would have been embarrassed, angry, and disgusted. You can see the same tendency in socialist literature, which even when it is not op uh, openly written to Autumnbeau, is also completely removed from the working class in idiom and manner of thought. For it must be remembered that a working man, so long as he remains a genuine working man, is never or seldom a socialist in the complete logically consistent sense. He might vote labor or even communist if he gets the chance, but his conception of socialism is quite different. To the ordinary working man, the type you would meet in any pub on a Saturday night, socialism does not mean much more than better wages and shorter hours and nobody bossing you about. To the more revolutionary type, the word is a sort of rallying cry against the forces of oppression, a vague threat of future violence. But so far as my experience goes, no genuine working man grasps the deeper implications of socialism. So in 1936, which is, what is that, 85 years ago, George Orwell saw wokeism in chrysalis form in, you know, what we now think of as kind of labor socialism uh, in its, you know, in its, in its um, dep depression era form as a, as a matter of the class struggle of the, 
of the bourgeoisie, not the class struggle of the working class, which I think is an interesting uh, wrinkle on this because it is the, it has exactly the same shape, which is, except that now we have these people and they are in charge of the higher, they're, they're, they're in charge of the high, the high water marks of our, of our culture, right? They're in charge of the media, they're in charge of universities, uh, they're in charge of the clergy. They're in charge of the nonprofit world. And so their reach is much larger and their cultural impact, as we've seen from how quickly reputations can be destroyed and lives can be ruined, you know, in the matter of hours due to social media and the 24-7 news cycle, um, just how powerful such a, such a set of assumptions can be when whereas before they might really have remained in the in the area of quackery fruit juice drinking <laughs> vegetarians who squeeze into overly short short pants as um, i think, put it i mean I, you know there, there's something else that uh, so many revolutionary movements have in common um aside from the the the, the people behind them not being um connected to those they 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 speak on on behalf of is that the outcomes that they propose and this or, or, the, or the policies they propose rather and this this applies to wokeism the outcomes of these policies may be great for them for 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 the for the woke but not so great for those parties that that they claim to be so concerned about or or are, or it, will it be great for the woke, I mean that's the interesting question. So we well, have yes. this, right? It, 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 if what they want, and Orwell gets at this, but is is um, some something is is to say something about who they are, and if they are status conscious, which is a big part of the the current woke movement, um, yeah, they 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 get to display um, their virtue, and 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 they you know and, and they get to expiate their their sins, and and so yeah, they love it. But there, but there's a weird sort of we're in a strange moment, I think, culturally, where there's an opportunity for more of these. The emperor has no clothes revelations on the part of the people both spoken uh, about by the woke or on behalf of the woke um, and, you know, fellow elites to say too much enough. No. Now, elections obviously are one way to do this, but those are much more complicated. But I do think that there is when you speak of status, there is a sense in which some of the elite that are getting that are kind of mimicking and saying all the right things and trying to to be woke probably don't ultimately believe what they're parroting. They're doing it because they they have fear. But if enough of that fear can be, um, if they see an alternative to, to being canceled, for example, if they see that more, more companies like Netflix stand up to the Twitter bullies and say, you know, we don't care, we're keeping Dave Chappelle. If more of that happens, then it exposes the hollowness of the acolytes, even as it shows that whatever they're arguing becomes more and more extremist. And I do think, I mean, we're going to talk about the Virginia elections in, in the second half of the hour, I know. There are ways this plays out in the public sphere, but I think among the elite, you're seeing that go on right now at Yale Law School. There's a big controversy about this. There are there's pushback. And when the elites start to become confused about how they're reacting, people see that. And I think that's actually a, something we should be optimistic about looking ahead. Well, Will, you, you teach at a historically black land grant university, Kentucky State. 
So um, your, your students are on the one hand, people who are training to be part of the American elite, college educated, middle-class, upper middle-class professionals. Um, how, do they, how do they fit into this general understanding of wokeness? How, I mean, how, how much of a role does this play on your, your campus? That's fascinating. I mean, first, in terms of that description you just read, I think it's fascinating how prescient that is and how much it applies today. I mean, if you go through this description of the advocates of the left parties in the U.S. or the U.K., isn't it? vegetarian feminists from the cities who keep boring you with their sex lives and so on. I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty applicable now. Um, so just very quick comment on that before getting into your um, your question. Uh, Orwell is clearly making some fairly key points there. I mean, one of the one of the ones that stands out to me is the idea that there's often a choice if you're an authentically working class person between socialism and fascism or something close to it. You see that even today. I mean, you would assume that the genuine alt right writers or the Proud Boys as a group or something like that are recruiting from populations very similar to those that socialists like to think they speak to. And there are, there are obvious reasons for that. If you're a working poor guy, the idea of having improved health care is going to appeal to you. But so are a lot of common sense, tough talk ideas, like maybe we need to get the damn cops back in the street. Or why, why are all these people who are not COVID tested flooding across the border? Many things that are clear and obvious, but that you're not supposed to discuss in middle or upper class life, to be frank. So the issue with the appeal of socialism today, and this feeds directly into the question, or the appeal of wokeness today, really is what he described it as being in 1936, which is that many of the advocates seem to be lunatics. And that idea of this is a conflict within the bourgeoisie, it's not a conflict involving the proletariat, is very correct. Um, the, the reality is that woke ideas, current gender ideology, for example, and socialist ideas, actual communism in the past, have generally been thought of as the most interesting, radical, outre ideas you can have. They're things to shock your father. As famous old line, I think from Steinem, maybe one of the early feminists. So that idea of shocking your parents, showing you're a rebel, showing you're different is always something that has been part of the appeal of the far left for guilty bourgeois kids. And so you have a very large number of guilty bourgeois kids represented among the people advocating these ideas. I mean, that, that's almost the entire population of those identifying as, for example, envy. I'm non-binary in gender terms and, and gender queer, any of this stuff today, I would guess. I haven't actually polled. But that group tends to dramatically turn off a lot of normal working class citizens who have to get up the morning after the meeting and go to a nine hour job as a master carpenter. Um, it's also understood to some extent that a lot of your bourgeois current allies aren't going to be permanent allies if you're a working class black or Appalachian white or something like that American. I mean, the, in the piece, there's that description. Most of these people in five years will have made a marriage for wealth and converted to traditional Roman Catholicism. I mean, we, we very much see that today. I mean, the, the main recruiter from these Ivy League campuses like Brown is McKenzie. I mean, the, the major players that were in the Chicago business scene when I was there, Goldman, Groupon, so on, they're going to be there recruiting for what are fairly senior executive track positions. 
So after five years working on a trading floor, are you still going to be talking about your non-binary feminist gender identity and so on? Probably not. And the average working class person knows that to some extent. Now at KSU, it's an interesting mix because like many good, but not say top 20 ranked schools, our students are smart people from across the sort of the class and regional spectrum. So we have a lot of students that are working class kids from tough black and Appalachian communities that want to be cops and that have no patience for any of this. Um, we also have a lot of students and I, I like both. It's fun to have a mix of kids in the classroom. Our, our students are in general good. But we also have people that are the sons of, say, African-American or increasingly Caucasian doctors from the Detroit suburbs. And that's where you see more of this. And there, there will often be a conflict between the two groups of students that mirrors what Orwell described, where someone will say something like, well, as a, you know, bisexual woman who has had X traumatic experience in my life, I feel like you need to respect my pronouns. And the common response to that from some black or Kentucky guy who wants to be a police officer might be either openly or subtly, I, I think that's nonsense. So I, I, I don't think that wokeness has made many inroads among the working class in Kentucky or really anywhere else. I think the Orwell problem, as I mentally dub it, uh, continues. So to some extent, that's a good thing. No, I mean, I think that the real issue here, uh, as we keep coming back to, is there is a certain element of response to what has gone on over the last year and a half where some people will say, Okay, look, what happened with George Floyd was a was a horror show. It was a horror show. It was a nightmare. We can't allow this sort of thing to happen. If we need to change certain kinds of rules and procedures involving the supervision of of police officers and how they and how their potential misconduct is handled within the justice system, maybe that's something that needs to be looked at. That's sort of like a common sense response that doesn't isn't that doesn't sort of globalize or universalize this one case to everything. And then there is the, we need to defund the police. We need to decriminalize crime. We need to release people from prisons on mass and that sort of thing to which many people who might be attracted to the first, then hear the second and say, well, all you, you people are all crazy. That that's, that's crazy talk. What's the matter with you? You know, there are some bad cops in Minneapolis that need to be dealt with don't say that everyone needs to be let out of prison. Are you insane? Like, where's the sanity here? And that's also sort of what Orwell himself as an intellectual figure. And then what he was describing here is, you know, he, he famously said some ideas are so stupid, only an intellectual could believe them. And then the other thing he said was the thing to which we have to cling as to a life belt is that it is possible to be a normal, decent person and yet to be fully alive, that you don't have to be, in a revolutionary stance in opposition to the to the larger culture in order to be an authentic person who can live a, a, a good and, and decent life. And these are increasingly being challenged by this notion that everything from the most essential part of our humanity, which is how our DNA is combined into either being having two X's or an X or a Y, is up for discussion. That is and the is fundamental the threat posed by wokeness, right? That's what makes it a revolutionary ethos is that it's it's elements that are inviolable moral precepts that you can't compromise on. Um, 
you don't need to persuade people to adopt them. You can force them to adopt them, or at least to be silent about their dissent, uh, and which is what renders it a revolutionary idea and a threatening idea and not just sort of a fashion. Right. Uh, let me just pull back for a minute and talk to you about our advertiser today, Aura. Because the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, but security tools have mostly stayed the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help you protect your online accounts, finances, devices, and more, all in one easy-to-use app. The internet has connected us with the latest news, long-distance friends, and funny animal videos. Unfortunately, it has also connected us with hackers and cyber criminals. Aura is there to protect you from the worst of the internet so you can still enjoy the best of it. Every 10 seconds, somebody becomes a victim of fraud or identity theft. What's worse, 23% of those people don't get their money back after the attack. If you think it could never happen to you, you could be their next target. Aura can help. It provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information, and tech safe from online threats. It's all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name. Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced US-based customer support that's got your back. Aura, a new type of security service that protects all your online information and devices with one simple subscription, an easy online dashboard, alerts sent straight to your phone. Aura keeps you in control, guides you through solving any issues. And so for a limited time, Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to Aura.com slash commentary to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash commentary. So Will, your piece, The Whiteness of Wokeness, is there at commentary.org for everyone to read if you are a subscriber. Thank you. Please enjoy it and be you know, illuminated by it and the other articles in the package. And if you are not a subscriber, it is time for you to subscribe. This is one of the most important issues we have ever done. We are getting response to it. It's only been out a couple of days online. We're getting oceans of response people are finding uh much to discuss and much to focus on in this package which includes articles by barry weiss and david zucker and tevi troy and jack wertheimer and sam abrams and michael j lewis and others please james jim meggs commentary.org few free reads you subscribe subscribe now you're a listener to this podcast and uh if you're listening this is one of the ways we keep the lights on through your subscriptions. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We rely on you to help support us and please do. Uh, let's move on to the more, uh, let's say, um, uh, temporary politics of the present moment. We are uh, a couple of weeks away from the midterm. It's not even a midterm, right? It's the 2019 first year off cycle election uh, in which the two big prizes are the governorships of New Jersey and Virginia. And the interesting thing that is now happening in Virginia, though it's really hard to believe, is that there is a there is a, a, a uh, an absolute barn burner of a race uh, between the Republican Glenn Youngkin and the Democrat Terry McAuliffe, former governor of Virginia, uh, 2013 to 2017, uh, Virginia governor's term one term and one term only um, for weird <laughs> 
it's a weird system, but that that that's all you get in Virginia is a single term. So McAuliffe is now uh, running for a real, he couldn't run for re-election right after his election, but he can run, you know, uh, discontinuously. Um, and uh, he released a commercial yesterday uh, that indicates to me that he is scared out of his wits that he is going to lose this race in which, according to the poll averages, he's up by about two and a half points. Um, it was in a debate between him and Yunkin a couple of weeks ago that uh, pressed on a matter involving critical race theory education and what's going on in local school boards and counties. He said something like he did not believe that parents had a role to play in educating their kids or parents should not have a role to play in educating their kids. And he put out a commercial yesterday with pictures of himself and his wife and his children and, you know, panning along, a you know, panning along the dresser with all the photos of the family saying he was taken out of context. When a politician has to run a commercial saying that he was taken out of context, because after all, the quote comes out of his own mouth. <laughs> no, it's not as though he didn't say the words that Yunkin is quoting him as saying in commercials and that all these third party people who are helping trying to get Yunkin elected are saying in their commercials and all that. He said it. So he now has to say that what he said was taken out of context. So of course, he believes that parents have a role to play in educating their children and all that. But writ large, what McAuliffe was saying is, I'm on the side of teachers. I'm on the side of teachers. I'm on the side of administrators. And uh, all these people who are making trouble in relation to their kids' education at, you know, at, the, at the elementary, intermediate, and high school levels, these are all troublemakers. And it's none of their business. They don't know anything. They don't know how to educate people. And they should stay out of it. Um, it I mean, it's almost worse than that. He sent his kids to private school. So not only is he telling parents that they have to trust the 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 unions that back his candidacy and, and elite technocrats like him because they know what's best for people who send their kids to public school. He didn't even send his own kids to public school. So the, the elitism, which is, I think, what people responded to and were angry about, he's not even addressing. I mean, you could do a commercial where you said, you know what, I said this and here's what I meant by it. I mean, you still look desperate and you still look like you're flailing in the in the weeks leading up to your election, but it would be more honest. I mean, what he's doing now is trying to say that I was misunderstood, but he wasn't. He was very clear and he's been consistent both in his policy statements and in his in his tone when he talks about parents. Parents are angry and they're justifiably angry for a number of reasons. And he's not engaging their concerns. He's he's either, you know, just telling them to be quiet and behave or he's saying, actually, we know better. And neither of those messages is going to resonate with those parents. I think there's another weakness with the uh, with the approach with the commercial, which is that it's it's an implicit acknowledgement that Yunkin is shaping the terms of debate um, and is setting the frame for the whole thing, and that so he's just operating within within the boundaries that that Yunkin have has established, um, and that that just makes you look sort of you know weak and um, reactive. Again, he said it. I mean, the key to understanding what happened here is that the words came out of his mouth. They didn't come out of Yunkin's mouth. They didn't come out of the, the questioner's mouth at the debate. They didn't come out of an editorial written to support Yunkin. It's not a bank shot issue, as often seems to happen, where 
people say, oh, well, you know, McAuliffe may lose because Biden is unpopular or Democrats are this or this will happen, that'll happen. This is a real test of a candidate's own viability based on, you know, a Kinsley gaffe. Kinsley gaffe, a term uh, relating to the former editor of the New Republic and columnist Michael Kinsley, who said that in Washington, a gaffe is when someone inadvertently speaks the truth instead of, you know, prevaricating or, you know, offering nostrums and cliches uh, to get uh, from point A to point B. Um, McCall, in the middle of, uh, of the first real explosion uh, of po- uh, in the school wars of a kind of populist anger that has many sources. I mean, because people are all focusing this on critical race theory. But it has to do with schools being open or closed, the way teachers and administrators behave, particularly in the northern Virginia suburbs, where it was particularly bad, where the whole point was that they acted as though the health and the safety and security of the staff at the school was the most important element of what was going on during the school year, not the education of the children of the school while everybody else understood that everyone's health and security and safety had to be tended to, the purpose of schooling and working in schools is to educate children. And it was adamantly clear, particularly, I think, in Fairfax County, which I think is the most populous county in Virginia, uh, in, the, in the Washington suburbs, uh, that the administrators and the teachers basically could give a damn about the kids. That wasn't what was going on here at all, that everything needed to be structured to make their lives as easy as possible, given the crisis that things were under. And parents saw this and resented it and resented the idea, particularly, say, the working class parents, again, to get to this, um, all of whom were going to work because they were the ones who were making the economy go while the thought workers could stay at home and, and do their work on Zoom. It's not as though the parents in Fairfax County who didn't live in McLean and the rich areas of the county, uh, you know, the ones who actually like send their kids to, you know, like work in the restaurants in Fairfax County or in Loudoun County or whatever, they were going to work every day in masks for nine hours a day and all of that. And, and, and nobody seemed to give a damn about them. Yeah. This is probably my only comment on this, but one of the things that I'm hearing from parents about this particular quote, I was at the Parents Unite conference about a week and a half back, although although this came after that, but this ties into one of the things that we were talking about as part of the discussion of the wokeness piece, which is this idea of respecting the designated experts, which John just sort of touched on. I mean, The idea that you know less about your kids than the teachers in the schools because someone with a BA in elementary education is now part of this ever expanding, I don't mean to make fun of that, but is now part of this ever expanding expert professional class. You can't critique my my expert knowledge of this field because I am a primary school teacher. And I think that a lot of people A lot of parents bluntly probably think, you know, I got a better SAT or GRE score than most of the people in many of these fields that I'm now being told to listen to by a pretty substantial margin if you look at the averages. And I'm getting sick of hearing this crap. If you're managing a restaurant, you probably feel you know at least as much about life and your child as someone in these positions. And in Virginia, I mean, we're seeing some, without extending this, we're seeing some pretty dramatic evidence of this. I mean, uh, Loudoun County, Virginia, 
there was the entire discussion about whether the designated expert school board should change the rules regarding bathroom access and a number of other things in a situation that turned out to involve the sexual abuse of a kid. So a lot of parents are looking at this and thinking at some level, these people are idiots. I don't need more of these designated professionals, politicians and early life educators and so on telling me what to do in my life. And that, that's a powerful blow against many of the movements on the political left right now. It wouldn't be a new phenomenon if this was just the techno technocratic impulse we're seeing here was just focused on a particular interpretation of <clears throat> how to teach arithmetic, how to teach science, how to teach grammar and English. What we're seeing is scholasticism. It is, it is the imposition of a dogma on students. Um, my neighbor, I was out speaking with my neighbor the other day, who's got a, uh, I believe, 11 year old girl. And they're adjudicating an issue with the school because the school has relied on a, a CNN uh, teaching aid to uh, promote, you know, to educate and to tend to supplement, I guess, what they can't do anymore in the classroom, which is actually teach. <clears throat> and part of the problem is, is that they're using this to teach civics. Now, the civics that they're teaching isn't the separation of powers or the Constitution. Um, the civics that they're teaching begins with Roe. Begins with Roe at which point you have to now come home and talk to your kid about what abortion is and what sex is and how babies are made. And this is the sort of thing that they're like, okay, well, I mean, the kid's old enough to know all this sort of thing, but it's not your place to do this. And it has nothing to do with academics. You don't get, you don't start civics with Roe, um, but that's ideology, not, you know, not actual academic processes and, I, and that's that's what's new and that's what's enraging if we were just talking about common core it'd be a very different conversation a much less lively conversation i think yeah even there there i mean there's some discussion about phonics versus whole language and so on but yeah as as an educator what many teachers will say is that because they have the the technocratic if you will degree in teaching they are experts in the education of children you know full stop and that can extend anything so that that's part of the gender discussion like if your child is taught in school about the quote unquote gender options and they identify as transgender at say 12, does the school have a duty to tell you this? And the current expert position is no. Look, in 1983, the education issue in the United States became a national crisis as a result of the release of a report called A Nation at Risk that showed that American children were more poorly educated than children in other advanced industrial economies. That was almost 40 years ago. Those numbers have not reversed themselves. The indictment in a nation at risk was of the existing sitting education system two generations ago and how badly it was doing at its job. We are now in 2021 there are two parties, and one of the parties, it is impossible, it is illegal, it is considered immoral and wrong to say boo about the low quality of American education, as though the outcomes in American education are any better relative to Finland and Singapore and South Korea in particular, just to name three, but I mean, there are countries all over the world in which our outcomes are really not that great. And we are in that there is now this kind of um, sentimental shibboleth about how educators are all heroes and we're all supposed to celebrate them because they're all so wonderful because they're wonderful because they represent the largest single class of unionized employee in the United States and they vote overwhelmingly for one party as opposed to the other. 
Christine, you were. I, well, I think this is where, though, I'm glad you brought this up because this is where the woke philosophy becomes a very useful uh, excuse making device. Right. So when you see these terrible outcomes and particularly for minority children in this country, the the response isn't, wow, we're we really suck at teaching and we need to rethink how we're doing all of this. The answer is this is evidence of systemic racism. So we need more wokeness piled on top of bad test scores or we need to get rid of the gifted and talented programs or get rid of admissions tests for public competitive public high schools because those that's all part of the systemic racism so i think in a way it it gives them a rationale for not doing the hard work of figuring out why far too many american children test below grade level for reading and math and basic skills especially at the early elementary level when these skills are very crucial for for later success in in school it, it's much easier to just talk about systemic racist issues. And politicians do this too. They certainly do with education. But look, another example of, of uh, the governor's race becoming very desperate uh, for Terry McAuliffe is that he's got Stacey Abrams out there uh, screaming and yelling about how she wasn't entitled in her state to become governor. Entitled. It was a really interesting slip of the tongue, one of those uh, uh, Kinsey gaffes, I think, because she's like, I come from a state where I wasn't entitled to become governor and I'm fighting for everybody so that, you know, the right person can be elected. Right. It's desperation because it, it reveals that they're not actually tackling the problems that voters or parents care about. And I also think what's the point here is the reason we're dedicating this segment to this is that McAuliffe made the ad. Youngkin didn't make the ad. McAuliffe is attempting to stanch a wound or to cauterize a wound a couple of weeks before the election to see what he can do because blood is flowing out of the wound and is weakening his campaign based on something that he said that was revelatory. And um, efforts are going to be made should Yunkin pull this rabbit out of the hat and win an election in what is now a very blue state that his predecessor um, uh, Ralph Northam won by nine points and that Biden won by 10 points. Should he actually manage to prevail and win or even come incredibly close? The instant thing that people are going to revert to is, well, this is all about race. It's white people, you know, being driven by this theory that's uh, critical race theory is bad. They don't even know what critical race theory is. And it's just it's just a sort of marker point for race. And the Republican Party is ginning up a problem with race rather than examining the question of, oh, my God, something really interesting in a populist direction happened here that both speaks to what's going on with Biden and the Democrats and how they're behaving with power in 2021 and the set of issues that seem to be alienating the people who gravitated toward them. We're not going to know if that's going to happen until Election Day, but McAuliffe is sure acting like he's worried that it is going to happen. Abe, well, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I think his big mistake is he went all in on this kind of romantic line, John, that you that you were talking about, that teachers are the unsung heroes um, at a time when I think no party did themselves more damage during the pandemic than teachers or than than uh, uh not, not teachers, but school administrators, teachers, the, the whole romantic notion that um, teachers are the unsung, underpaid heroes who are, you know, out, out there doing doing the doing the tough work. Um, that took the biggest blow of all, I think, during during the pandemic, which is why, in part, I think it's sort of it's ground zero for the anti-woke pushback. 
I, I mean, I think you're exactly right that it's one thing to say, oh, my God, you know, our heroes are our nurses and our first responders. And even like the Uber Eats people who brought us food while we couldn't go out to a restaurant or, you know, people who work in Amazon warehouses or something like that. But teachers sitting in their own apartments, not having to go to work or supervise kids in a classroom like that. Look, we all went to school. I went, I happened to go to private schools. I went to extremely good schools. I got to make that, you know, my parents got to make that choice that Tara McAuliffe made. And I went to extremely good private schools and they were fantastic and it was all great. And you know how many good teachers I had in those, you know, 12 years that I was in school? I don't know, six. I mean, you know, and this is at, you know, great private schools taught by Vietnam era draft dodgers who were all, you know, like staying out of, the military by going to graduate school till they were 28 or 29 and their draft number was high enough that they didn't have to, they, they could leave graduate school and then take a job because they weren't going to go off to Vietnam. So they were highly educated. They were very nice. They were very smart and they taught really well. And I learned a lot from them, but again, like 12, you know, six, seven really memorable teachers in my entire And that, that's going to the best schools that cost an arm and a leg. Like, I didn't go to some bad or, you know, like middling public school. Everyone in America went to school. Do people think that their teachers and the administrators that supervised them were just heroes? I told this Seriously. story before on the <laughs> on the podcast, but at the height of the pandemic, uh, NJEA, which is the state's teachers union, <clears throat> put out this commercial in your state, New in Jersey. my state, New Jersey, celebrating teachers and what they're doing, working from home and how difficult, you know, times are for them and how they're struggling through it and serving your children and you should be thankful for them, blah, blah, blah. And the teacher's portrait that they decided to use to exemplify this condition was this very young woman working on a laptop from her house in pajamas. Now I work from home. I don't sit at my desk unless I've showered and shaved and put myself together because it's a job. You behave like you're at work. To me, this was so off-putting. And I can't imagine that I'm alone, that this is the sort of the status quo now that we were accept we were understood that standards were lower here. So standards could be lower elsewhere too, right? We all just had to reduce our expectations a little bit. That's, that, very... that's saying nothing of, I mean, people have forgotten all the nonsense that teachers, maybe they were, or perhaps they haven't forgotten all the nonsense that teachers pulled during this Um we're not going to come back until our, our safety is guaranteed. Okay, our safety is guaranteed. We're not going to come back until these um, social justice criteria are met. Um, you know, and then comes in the wokeism, the whole, you know, this, this came out of several teachers unions, the whole wide array of um, social justice demands being met. What on earth has that to do with their responsibility and obligation to educate kids? I should say it is the, more the labor unions than it is individual teachers. I'm sure right, there well, are that's, exceptions, but the organization that's to blame here are the, the unions and organized labor. But I mean, that's an important point. And it gets also back to, to, to Will's point, which is that the Los Angeles teachers union that had that that has that crazy woman who runs it, who made all those demands you know, I'm sure that half the teachers and not more of, you know, who are actually who are actually work in the Los Angeles city schools are not lunatics like her. I mean, there are I don't know how there are um, four or five million teachers in the United States. I mean, I'm sure they come in all kinds of qualities with all kinds of different views and all of this. 
and that a lot of this has, you know, they've been reduced to this kind of uh, cultural stereotype uh, on the right of all being these kind of, you know, grasping, hung, you know, grasping, greedy, uh, living off the public, you know, living, sort of chewing the public cud while they're lounging in their pajamas. Um, but, you know, such is such is life. Like this is the nature of what happens in American politics uh, when when systems start to fail. And clearly, well, and- the edu- yeah. And, and I will say, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, I had many of these conversations, both with fellow parents uh, and and with some of my kids' teachers last year. We My kids go to public school in D.C., a very blue city, obviously very, very liberal, um, very power, pretty powerful teachers union. So when parents would push back on individual teachers and be like, so what's the deal? You guys got vaccinated months ago. Why, why aren't schools coming back or pressing the principal, as I did of my kids' high school? The response was always. Well, you know, we'd love to, but it's the administrators or, or the union has said we really can't do that. And, and I think for parents, it was a realization that, well, if you really wanted to do this, you could. So stop blaming this institution, which you or give resign. your money to. Yes. Or resign and if you, it's such a moral compromise. Exactly. Exactly. So there, there was a real moment where parents, especially parents who, ha- who, as we've said, had to get up and go into dangerous public facing jobs before vac- there were vaccines and had to go to work and had to do all those things. They have no tolerance for that. And they shouldn't because the job of the teacher was to educate. And yes, there was a lot of tolerance for figuring out a system that would work during the lockdown. But there was always supposed to be an end in sight. And I, I hate to say it, but it continues into this school year, which the parents, when you your kids go back to school. If what you're hearing is a lot of critical race theory nonsense and the teachers still have this idea that they should have one day off a week, as they did in my school district last year, it becomes intolerable for the parents. They're like, what are you doing? And they're not getting a response. They're not getting a, a reasonable response to that question. And they're also getting paid more. Teachers are getting paid more than working class than the parents of working class kids. I mean, it's just a simple matter of fact so the administrators again, in my school district make make well over a hundred thousand yeah. uh, dollars right. which is not what the average dc resident makes yeah so in essence what we have here is this question of whether or not wokeness woke some version of wokeness uh is facing its first real electoral test in virginia i mean it's very complicated and there are a lot of different factors that are going into this and i still think that it's odds on that mcauliffe rides this out and and wins. I just don't know that there are enough Republican voters in the state to uh, let it for, for it to be possible for Youngkin to prevail. But, you know, uh, surprises can happen. And as I say, the 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 most important data point here is that McAuliffe found it necessary to make a commercial disavowing the thing that he said by saying he didn't really say it or he said it, but he was taken out of context. And when, and when you're explaining, you're losing, like that's just a classic, uh, classic rule of thumb. Will Riley, thank you so much for joining us. His piece, the whiteness of wokeness, as I've been telling you is at commentary.org in our woke, the threat issue, go there, read it, subscribe. Uh, and if you subscribe, you will see more of Wilfred Riley, who has, I think this is probably your seventh piece in the last uh, three or four years. Uh, it's one of our, one of our uh, more exciting uh, acquisitions, semi-acquisitions, uh, you as a, as, a, as a regular contributor and, uh, and one of the many uh, virtues of the magazine uh, for its subscribers is being able to read uh, Wilfred Riley's commonsensical application of political science theory and just like 
what the hell are you talking about? Good thinking mm-hmm. to a range of problems ranging from uh, crime to civil rights to all kinds of things, including the whiteness of wokeness. So thanks for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow with Tevi Troy, who will be talking about the um, woke revolution in medicine and what kind of threat that poses. Uh, Thursday, we should be hearing from David Zucker, uh, the director of Airplane, uh, or the writer of Airplane and The Naked Gun and various other things, uh, Basketball, um, who is writing about comedy and wokeness. Uh, And uh, Friday, I think we're going to have Barry Weiss on uh, with her piece on cowardice and courage when it comes to wokeness. So it's a pretty exciting week. Please join us. We'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christine, and Noah. And Will Riley, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.